Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Now, you did not mishear me. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 17. Now, perhaps more than any time in history, we have access to more opinions, more memes, more gifs, some people call them gifs. What is it, a gif or a gif? Gif. Okay. Video clips, talking heads, unlimited information. All because of social media, the internet, and smartphones. Now think about your smartphone for a moment. On your smartphone, you can have access to any news feed that you want from all over the world. You can go to any YouTube clip. You can go to your Instagram post. You can go to your Twitter feed. You can get a video from the App Store. You can check your Facebook likes. Now, I remember back in the olden days. Some of you are like, the olden days? Yes, the olden days. Back when you had to walk eight feet across the shag carpet to change the channel on the TV. There were only four stations back in those days. ABC, NBC, CBS. And the only time we ever watched PBS was to watch Sesame Street. So you had four channels back in those days. But today, we have so much information. And as you think about all this information that we have, everybody seems to have an opinion. Now, everybody's always had opinions, but with the proliferation of social media, you get to find out what everybody's opinion is. Just, just go on social media. You'll find out what people's opinions are. On sports, politics, food, weather, travel destinations, hobbies, everybody's got an opinion. And then everybody's got an opinion about religion, their thoughts about God. And so we are bombarded every day with so much information, more probably than any other time in our, in our lifetime. And it's hard to filter out what is true, what is meaningful, What is something that we should really spend our time thinking about? All these different opinions, all this information, all these talking heads. Now, it's not that much different. Paul, the missionary, in his day, dealt with these same issues. He would go to these large Greek cities. And as he would go to these large Greek cities, there would be talking heads all over the place sharing their opinions about everything under the sun. Now, you may ask yourself, what in the world does this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave? Well, Paul's visit to the city in Athens teaches us a lot about the importance of the empty tomb. So, if you've got your Bibles with you, we are going to look at Paul's journey to the ancient city of Athens, a city known for architecture, a city known for its temples and its philosophers, 
all of these different things going on in this ancient city of Greece. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's look at, at Acts chapter 17. Let's pick up in verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching a foreign divinity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. It's, it's otherwise known as Mars Hill, the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, this is ancient Greece. There's no Facebook there's no Instagram, there's no internet blogs, there's no cable news, there's no movie theaters. And so where you would go to get information is what was called the marketplace. So all these people would show up in the marketplace, people would sh set up shop, they would be talking and discussing, and people would be selling their goods, but they would also be exchanging ideas, and that's exactly where Paul goes. And so Paul goes to Greece, the ancient city of Athens. Now, the ancient city of Athens, they worshipped a pantheon of gods and goddesses. In that culture, it was very unpopular to say there was only one God or one way of salvation. As a matter of fact, it was called hate-filled and bigoted to say there was only one way. Hmm, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? Sounds like the culture that we live in today, where we as Christians are often labeled as intolerant and bigoted. Because we say there's only one way of salvation. Now, Paul engages these philosophers, the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. So let me kind of tell you a little bit about the belief system of these philosophers. So the Epicureans, their mantra in life was, I want to experience the maximum amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain on planet Earth. So their idea was you only go around once, so let's go out with a bang. Let's have as much fun, as much pleasure, as, as much joy in this life as we can. And I definitely don't want to suffer. I don't want things to be uncomfortable. I want pleasure. That sounds very similar to the world in which we live today, where a lot of people just live for pleasure at all costs and never want to be uncomfortable or have to experience suffering. Now the Stoics, on the other hand, they were the stiff upper lip. The gods dealt you a bad card, a deck of cards, and, and you were a victim of cruel fate, and so you just kind of had to grin and bear it. You had to do your best. You had to bear up under the pressure. Uh, and, and so they kind of just lived in this very harsh idea that the gods were punishing them. And so these two philosophies are what's kind of central in the city of Athens. And so Paul goes to them, and I want to ask you, what is the crux of Paul's message. Well, you see it in verse 18. What does it say in verse 18? At the very end of verse 18, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Actually, the word there in the original language is evangelizing. Paul was preaching to them about Jesus 
in the empty tomb. Jesus in the resurrection. And some of these people thought, now, this is crazy language. I, I don't understand what Paul's talking about. He sounds like he's off his rocker. He's a babbler. And so they say, hey, Paul, we want to know what you have to say about this. We're interested. We're, we're interested in all these new ideas. It sounds like this is kind of interesting, this Jesus rising from the grave. Come share with us what your thoughts are. And so they take him to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, this open area where Paul begins to actually preach a sermon to them. So I'm just going to give you a fair warning this morning. I'm plagiarizing, okay? Like, ooh, no, Pastor John's plagiarizing. I'm plagiarizing Paul, okay? I'm preaching Paul's sermon this morning of what Paul preached to these people because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, and they were curious. So let's see what Paul does. How does Paul engage them? Well, let's keep reading. So verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, and here's the beginning of Paul's sermon or Paul's speech, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the un." known God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So what's Paul's opening line? I see that you men are very religious. You're very religious. In our day, it would be something like, I see that you're spiritual. You seem to be a spiritual person. I don't like going to church. I don't like talking about Christianity, but I'm spiritual. So Paul starts this, I see you're very religious. As a matter of fact, I see this altar to this unknown God. Now remember, this is the world of Zeus and Diana and Hermes and Apollos, all the Greek gods and goddesses. And so here's the thing. If you wanted to go on a sea voyage, you'd pray to Apollos, the sea god. If you wanted to give a speech, you'd pray to Hermes, the god of oratory. You would never give your devotion just to one god. Here's why. If you gave your devotion just to one God, there may be another God that would get mad or would get jealous. And so the gods are always getting jealous at each other. So here's what these people did. They, they tried to cover all their bases. Just so we can cover our bases, we're going to have this blanket unknown God in case there's one out there that we've offended who's going to be mad at us. So we've created the unknown God. We don't know what his or her name is. It's just the unknown God because they lived in this type of fear. And Paul goes to them and says, listen, I'm going to address your ignorance about the one true and living God. But Paul's gentle. He doesn't just slam him. He says, hey, I, I know you guys are spiritual. I know you're religious. Let me just explain to you what's going on here. So what's Paul's aim? What is Paul attempting to do in sharing the gospel with these philosophers? Well, he wants them to know the one true and living God so that they can worship the one true living God. And he does this by preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, that's the ultimate purpose in life. Our purpose in life is to worship and to glorify God, to enjoy God forever, to glorify Him, to know God, and to know God by having a relationship with this God through His Son, Jesus. See, the only way you can worship and know God and have a relationship with the living God is through His Son, Jesus Christ, who rose from the grave. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it this way in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth 
and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, 3, says this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So that's a, that's a great question for you to ask on this Resurrection Sunday. Do you know the one true living God and his son, Jesus Christ? Because Jesus says that's eternal life, to know this God and his son, Jesus Christ. So on this Resurrection Sunday, it's very, very important for us to know this God so that we can worship this God and have a relationship with this God through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how does this start? You need to know about this God before you can worship him properly. So what is Paul's message? What's Paul's sermon? Tie my shoe here before I trip. Paul has three points. He's a good Baptist. He's got three points. And actually, he has a poem, (laughs) as we'll see. No, actually, there's four truths that we need to know this Easter that will give us the hope of eternal life. As we follow Paul's train of thought, what is Paul saying to these? How is Paul preaching Jesus and the resurrection? So here's truth number one that we need to understand. First, the one true God is the creator of the universe. Now notice that Paul starts with creation. So let's look at verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says you're worshiping this unknown God over here that you've kind of labeled Let me share to you who the one true living God, He's the creator of all things. He starts with creation. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and says, God's the creator. God's the creator of you and of me, the creator of all of us. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to all people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Now, the idea of having a creator was very foreign to the Athenians because they just believed in chance, kind of like the Big Bang. It just kind of happened by chance. And also, not only did it happen by chance, but that it was kind of like an avatar theology, you know, the movie Avatar. Like, you're part of nature, and nature's part of you, and we're all just kind of part of God. It's called pantheism. So they really had no concept of a one living and true God who was the creator. And that's really what it's like today. There's a lot of people that don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that there is one true living God who's the creator of all things. And then you you may say, well, what's the importance of God being creator? That's great theology. That's great trivia. I'm glad that we know that God is the creator. What's the point? Well, here's the point. The point is if God is your creator, you're accountable to him. You are created in His image and you're accountable to Him. He is your ruler. He is your king. And He is the one who is in charge. You're not here by random chance. 
You're not a product of an accident. You are here purposely because God created you and God gives you breath and God gives you life and God is the sustainer of all things. And God is the Lord of heaven and earth, Paul says. He's, he's not in a temple. God doesn't just live someplace in a temple, but He's over all things. And then in verse 25, it says God doesn't really need anything. Verse 25, He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't need anything. God has no needs. God needs nothing. But here's the problem. We often think God needs us. We treat him like a genie in a bottle or a cosmic vending machine. Instead of us serving God, we want God to serve us. I want God to come to my beck and call. I want God to do things my way. I want God to operate on my agenda. And so the first thing that Paul does is he goes straight to creation and says, listen, Athenians that don't have any concept of who God really is because you're worshiping an unknown God, you need to understand God's your creator. He gave you breath. He gave you life. You're accountable to him. He has no needs. He is the living and true God. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are accountable to this God who gives breath in your lungs. So that's the first thing Paul does. He starts with creation. Now here's the second The second truth we see, the one true God is sovereign over all things. So not only is God the creator, but he's also sovereign. So let's continue reading and see how Paul explains this in verses 26 and 28. And he, this is God, made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He's actually not far from each of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. So God is not only the creator of all things, but He's the ordainer of all things. Everything that happens in history Paul's saying, listen, from Adam came all the human races. It came to the boundaries where people live, times, seasons. Have you ever thought about this? God determined when you would be born and where you would be born and at the exact moment that you would be born. He determines the changing of the seasons. He's orchestrating every event in history towards his desired end. Psalm 74, 17. You've fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You've made summer and winter. Now, why is God doing this? Why is God working in time and space and history and nations in your life when you live? Why is God doing this? Well, Paul says the reason he's doing this is so that you would seek him, that you would seek your creator. Now, it's interesting because the way Paul describes seeking is, is more like fumbling around in the dark like a blind person walking along the edge of a wall. You're trying to see. And that's really the way the Bible describes all of us because of sin. The Bible says all of us are blinded by Satan. We really, truly can't seek God. We can't see because we have sin in our lives. It's blinded us. But we are to be searching. And here's what happens. We search in all the wrong places. What happens when you try to blindly see God and make up your own God, the way Paul is addressing them right here? What happens? People end up making up their own religion. They make up their own spirituality. They set their own morals and values. And ultimately, you become an idolater because ultimately, you want to be the one in charge. 
You see, we were created to seek after God, but we don't. We suppress that truth, and we become idolaters instead. We don't seek after God the way we should. And so Paul then, I told you he gave a poem there. Paul actually quotes from their own poets, their own philosophers. He quotes, he quotes from a guy named Epinemes, a Cretan poet, and he gives a line about a poem from Zeus. Now, we need to be very careful here. Paul is not saying that these pagan poets understood God. Paul's not getting his theology from pagan poets. What Paul is doing is he's finding a point of connection. He's, pi- he's finding a point of, of connection to where he can start a conversation. Now, there is a difference between, between being culturally aware and culturally seduced. As Christians, we need to be culturally aware. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world. That doesn't mean you have to know everything about everything, but you do need to be aware. But you also don't need to be seduced by the culture. You need to know what's going on in religion and politics and sports and news so that you can have gospel conversations with people that don't know Jesus. You need to have some awareness of what's going on, but you don't want to be seduced. And so Paul is saying, listen, do you understand that God is the living God? He's the creator. He's absolutely and meticulously sovereign over every aspect of your life. He's working out all things according to his plan. Everything happens because he's in control. So he's the living and true God. He's the creator of all things. He's the living and true God. He's the sustainer of all things. And this leads to a logical conclusion, which is Paul's third point. If God is the creator and God is the sustainer and we are supposed to seek him, here's Paul's third point. Third, the living and true God must be worshipped. If he is the creator and he is the sustainer and he does give you life and breath and he determined when you were born and he's doing everything in your life to draw you to himself, then you need to worship him. So in verse 29, Paul goes straight to the idolatry issue. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. Now Paul does say we are indeed God's offspring. Now this is not like in the pantheistic sense that we're part of God and God's part of us and we're interconnected like we're little gods. What Paul's basically saying is we're created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, we are to worship this God. And so the greatest sin you can commit is idolatry. A failure to worship the one true living God. You know what idolatry is? Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? To me, God is dot, dot, dot. And they make up something about God that is not who God is. Or they may say things like, my God would never dot, dot, dot. And then they say, my God would never do something that the Bible clearly says God would do. See, that's idolatry. Idolatry is you're making up in your imagination what you want God to be. You're making up God to fit your agenda. And so we are created in the image of God to worship God. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's not going to share his glory. He deserves to be worshipped and praised. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name, 
whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were formed and created for God's glory. Now let me, let me ask you a question. How do you know that you're worshiping an idol? Pastor Sean, how do you know you're worshiping an idol? Well, I can go to your backyard and I'll see those little like uh, wooden statues in your backyard, right? No, none of you are going to have wooden statues in your background. What's an idol? Well, let me ask you some questions to determine what may be an idol in your life. What drives you? What motivates you? What do you ultimately live for? And those can be good things. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be a job. It could be a career. It could be a sport. It could be a hobby. Anything that you live for that you're putting above God. Let me ask you a question. What happens when that thing you're living for disappoints you or lets you down? You get frustrated. You know why you get frustrated and let down? Because that thing you put as an idol was never meant to give you satisfaction. They're always going to let you down. And here's what idolatry does. When you elevate things to a place that they should not be, you become enslaved to them because you live for them and, and they consume you. And then when they let you down, you get discouraged and you get distraught. And so basically, you've created something that you're actually thinking is going to give you purpose, but you're actually enslaved to it because it was never meant to take the place of the only one who can truly satisfy your soul and give you true purpose and meaning, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what drives you? You see, God created you. There's a God in heaven. He created you. You're not an accident. You were put on this earth to worship this living God. And the problem is all of us have created idols in our hearts, but we haven't worshiped God the way we're supposed to. Now, John Stott has given me some insight into the issue of idolatry, and so I think it's important. He talks about there's four things that we try to do when we become idolaters, when we, when we create idols in our hearts with God. He says these are four, th- four things we try to do with God. First, we try to localize God. We try to localize God, meaning that we want God to fit our agenda. If I could just put God in my little box and I can localize Him and I can make Him my little God, then that's idolatry. We localize God. Second, he says, we try to domesticate God. I want a God that's not going to threaten my security. I want a God that's not going to demand anything from me. I want to control Him. I want to domesticate Him. I don't want a powerful, sovereign God. I want a God I can control. Or then third, he says, we can alienate God. If things don't go our way, we just blame God. If God doesn't answer prayers the way we want to, we blame Him, we push Him aside, we alienate Him, we say, it's your fault, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And then ultimately, John Stott says, number four, we can dethrone God. Basically say, God, I want to be on the throne of my life, I'm kicking you off, I'll sit on the throne, thank you very much. I deserve to be on the throne of my life, and I'm kicking you off the throne. That's idolatry. When you localize God, when you domesticate God, when you alienate God, and ultimately when you kick God off the throne of your life and say, I want to be in charge. Idolatry doesn't have to be a little statue in your backyard. It's any attempt you do to somehow elevate something above God or try to control God or you create a God in your own imagination of what you want Him to be besides the living and true God. So what are Paul's three points so far? They're very simple Number one, God's the creator of all things. Number two, God's the sustainer and sovereign over all things. And number three, this God must be worshipped because he is the sovereign creator. Now, why is this so important to Jesus in the empty tomb? 
Remember, Paul is preaching, back in verse 18, Paul is preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Here's how Paul brings it to a close. How does Paul close his sermon? Maybe not how you expected it. Here's the fourth thing we see. The living God will one day bring final judgment. Notice how Paul brings it to a close there. Let's look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Who? By a man whom he's appointed. Who's this man? Of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says there's a day of judgment coming and you need to repent. Now, judgment was also a foreign concept to the Athenians. They had no idea that there was a final judgment, that you'd stand before God on the final day, that there would be a hell, that there would be a judgment. That was foreign to them. Same, same, same thing today. There's a lot of people that don't believe in hell. They don't believe in a, in a final judgment. They kind of bristle at that thought. But I want you to notice how Paul describes the judgment. He gives three descriptions of the judgment. First of all, he says, God's judgment will be universal. Why? I'm judging the whole world. Nobody is left out of the final judgment. I'm judging the world. No one will escape. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying this is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brother, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So number one, it's universal judgment. Everybody's going to be judged, the whole world. Number two, the judgment will be just. Notice what he says there. He will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness. He will have every right to bring judgment, and nobody can blame God for being unjust or unfair when he does bring that justice. Romans 2.5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's universal. It's the whole world. Number two, it's righteous. But I want you to notice the third thing that Paul says. It's definite. There is a fixed day. Notice what Paul says. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. He's fixed a day. You can't stop it once it's been fixed. God has fixed it. God has set it. It's on God's calendar. He is going to bring it. It will come. You cannot stop it from coming. Amos 5.18 Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. So let's, let's see where Paul's going here. So Paul says, okay, what's the greatest demonstration that God is the creator, God is sovereign, God is worthy to be worshipped, and that God is the judge? He's fixed today. What's the greatest demonstration of that? How can you know this God? If you're supposed to seek for this God, how do you know this God? Who's the one that God has ordained to bring it all about? Well, God has appointed one man to do this, Jesus. And what does Paul say about this one man? Right there at the end of verse 31. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the resurrected Christ, and the resurrection stands as the center of human history. The empty tomb is the most important event of all time. 
Paul says here. It's the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and appeared to over 500 people. There is verifiable proof that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus had not risen from the dead, we would be the most helpless, hopeless, hell-bound people in the entire world. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith's in vain. We have a useless faith if Christ didn't rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So Paul says, listen, here's my message to you, Athenians that are worshiping the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the known God is. He's the creator of the entire universe. He's your creator. You're accountable to him. Number two, he's the sustainer of all things. He determined when you were born, how you came into this world. He's the one that's orchestrating your life. Number three, he needs to be worshipped. And you're an idolater. You're creating idols in your hearts and your minds and in your imaginations. And there is a day of judgment that is coming. And God has proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. There is an empty tomb. So the question is, how do you respond to all this? You take it or leave it? I'm kind of ambivalent towards this. Do you walk away on Easter morning unmoved in your heart? Now, perhaps some of you may be rejecting Jesus, not because you don't think it's true. You believe the empty tomb. Maybe you're rejecting Jesus because you just don't think it's that big of a deal. It's trivial compared to all the things I've got to deal with. It's not that you're against Jesus. You're ambivalent toward it. It doesn't really matter to my life. But I want you to notice that Paul gives them the response that all of us are supposed to have. Do you see the response? It's there in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. God is commanding it, which means it's not optional. Repentance is not optional. Now you ask, what is repentance? Repentance means to own up to your sin, to turn from your sin, to acknowledge your sin, to acknowledge that you've rebelled against a holy God, and to turn from that sin and to trust Jesus Christ as the only one that can save you from that sin. To turn from your idolatry, if you will. As Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. How you turned from or turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, here's the point. Only those who have turned from their idols and turned to trust in Jesus, who rose from the dead, will escape the wrath to come on that final day. When that fixed day judgment comes when God comes as the righteous judge and sends Jesus back only those who've repented of their sins and trusted in Christ and believed in the empty tomb and trusted in the resurrection Savior Jesus Christ they will be the ones to escape the wrath to come so you've got to believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again Acts 2 23 through 24 this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And I want you to notice what Paul says there at the very end. He says at the very end of verse 31, of this he's given assurance to all by rising him from the dead. You know what that word assurance means? He's given us proof. He's given us evidence. He's given us assurance. The assurance is this. You can have the rock-solid proof, evidence, assurance that if you trust in Jesus Christ alone who raised from the dead, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will have eternal life. You can escape final judgment. You can believe that there is this one God who's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ultimate creator of all things. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and to rise again. And he's given us that assurance to know that if we repent and believe, we will have eternal life. But I want to show you one other thing. How do people respond to Paul's sermon? You see three responses. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, remember he's preaching the resurrection. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's the first response, contempt. They laughed out loud and mocked what they heard. I have contempt for this message. I hate this message. I'm going to scorn this message. So the first response we see is contempt. Well, let's look at the second response. But others said, we will hear you again about this. The second response is curiosity. Not contempt, but curiosity. I'm not sure if I buy this, Paul, but I'm I'm willing to hear you again. Not quite sure, but I'm willing to hear you again. That may be where some of you are here today. I'm not quite sure about this, but I want to hear it some more. I'm curious. So contempt, I'm offended. Curiosity, I'm interested. But let's see the third response. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The third response we see is actually conversion. Conversion, people got saved and they believed. So there were some in that crowd, not many, who believed that God was their creator. They believed that there was a day of judgment. They believed in the resurrection of Christ, and they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So what's your response today to the empty tomb? To Jesus, who has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. What's your response to Jesus, who conquered death by rising again? Is your response contempt? Is your response curiosity? Or is your response falling on your face and being converted by grace because you believed in the empty tomb and you know Jesus can save you? Will you repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins and give you eternal life? What better time than Resurrection Sunday, Easter 2023, than to say on this day, I'm giving my life to Jesus because I believe the empty tomb and I want to escape that day of judgment. I want my sins forgiven. I want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he stands 
as the risen Savior, ready, willing, and able to save you today. And Paul says now, today is the day of salvation. Today. Repent. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. Believe the empty tomb. Find forgiveness for your heart. Find eternal life. And go away today knowing that you have the joy of the Lord as your strength because of the empty tomb. Would you repent and believe in Jesus today as your risen Savior? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Some of you this morning that came into this room and you're not really sure why you came just because it's an Easter service and it's kind of the thing to do this time of year. And maybe you are curious. Maybe you want to know more. Maybe you're not fully convinced that Jesus is the Savior and the only way. I I would just encourage you to just in your heart of hearts cry out to the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Trust in Jesus. Be one of those that has come to understand that you are a sinner separated from a holy God and you need Christ as your Savior and God has given proof by raising Him from the dead and would you just cry out to this Jesus to give you eternal life and to forgive you and to save you. There may be others in this room that we have some idols in our hearts. Some idols deep in our hearts that are like really taking over our lives. Would you take this opportunity to ask the Lord to search your heart to see what Maybe you've risen to something that's risen to the level of idol. It's controlling you. It's enslaving you. You need to turn from that. So help us, Father, as we gather this morning to be those that would repent as you've commanded us to. And we would turn from our idols to serve the living and true God. And we would believe that, Jesus, you are the Savior that's risen from the grave and that you're coming back on that fixed day of judgment. Help us to be ready for that day because we've trusted you as our Savior. Jesus, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the joy that we have to know that our sins can be forgiven, that we can have eternal life, that we can, that we were created in your image, Lord, to, to worship you and to have relationship with you. And the only way we can have that relationship is through Jesus. And so, Lord, if there's anybody in this room today that, that does not know in their heart of hearts that they have that relationship with the living God, the Creator, through Jesus Christ, would today be the day in their heart of hearts where they nail it down, where they make sure, where they truly repent and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to be thankful, help us to be grateful, help us to be joyful on this Resurrection Sunday because our Redeemer lives and the tomb is empty. Thank you, Jesus, for being our risen Savior, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.